Warriors, this is the Spartan Underground. And now, your host, James 300 Foster. up spartan warriors welcome to episode 10 of the spartan underground podcast this episode features somebody i consider to be a pioneer in the area of jiu-jitsu instructional information uh, my good friend mr stefan kesting uh, stefan created a lot of the first instructional dvds the the first quality instructional dvds that i had ever purchased and uh learn from. So I was really excited to have him as a guest on the show. Uh, as always, we need to take a moment to talk about our sponsors. The featured sponsor for this episode is Impact Custom Mouthguards, simply the best jiu-jitsu, MMA, and boxing mouthguards on the market, completely custom. They send out a kit. You do the mold of your teeth. It's super simple. Send it back to them and get your custom mouth guard shortly after. So make sure you check them out on impactmouthguards.com and use the code SPARTAN and then the number 10 to receive 10% off of your order. We also have to talk about our good friends over at Show Your Roll. Show Your Roll sponsors every episode of the Spartan Underground. Check them out on showyourroll.com. That's www.shoyoroll.com. Simply the best jujitsu uniforms on the market. Also sponsored by our great friends at Albino and Preto, who make awesome jujitsu apparel and also are in the market of jujitsu uniforms. They are uh, one of Show Your Roll's sister brands. Awesome gear. Make sure you check them out at www.albinoandpreto.com Again, www.albinoandpreto.com And without any further delay, here's the show. What's up, Spartan Warriors? We're here for episode 10 of the Spartan Underground podcast. I am really excited about this episode. This is somebody I've wanted to have on for a very long time. Uh, somebody I feel is one of the pioneer in jujitsu instructional information. I have my good friend Stefan Kesting on with us tonight. How you doing tonight, Stefan? I'm doing great, James. How about you? Oh, man. I just took my ibuprofen, just had a, a good <laughs> the, good the training. Vitamin. Yeah, the grapplers pre-workout and post-workout. Uh, had a great training session today, getting ready for my super fight over in Spokane next weekend. So definitely uh, in that stage feeling banged up. But what have you been up to lately? Uh, I survived Hawaii. I <laughs> went to oh. Hawaii for Christmas and, you know, there, there's... Lots of uh, jiu-jitsu there, or there is jiu-jitsu there, right? And uh, got there, and I was absolutely sick as a dog, and everybody who was traveling with us was sick as a dog, so there was absolutely no jiu-jitsu in Hawaii oh, for me. Oh, man. 
That actually, yeah. uh, the one time my wife went to Hawaii with her family, the same thing happened to her. She was sick and miserable the entire time they were there. I think, I think it might have something to do with that long flight or something. Well, I think we were all on the downhill slope before getting there. Right. I, I can't blame, uh, can't blame the flight. I'm sure it didn't help. But yeah, yeah it's, it's disappointing because I'd, um, I've been looking forward to doing that, and you know, not to mention that, you know, there's some. Look, just looking at the map, there's some amazing hiking there. So that kind of, it would have been a nice combination of two of my passions, which is the jiu-jitsu and the, the outdoor stuff. But yeah, whatever, yeah. You know, if, if you got to be sick, you might as well be sitting on a beach. Exactly. It, uh, well, so. and, and now you'll have an excuse to go back, right? Go yeah. and do all the things that you, you missed out on doing while you were sick. Well, no matter where you go, you're always going to miss out on something. So oh, Very that, true. Yeah. Uh, to all you Hawaiians there, you do live in paradise, so uh, I'll come back and bug you another time. Yeah, they certainly do. I actually have some relatives over there, but I've never, uh, I've never been over there, so I need to make my way over there. Hopefully I don't get sick, though. <laughs> <laughs> now, for some of the people listening who may not know a whole lot about you, uh, why don't you tell them a little bit about how you got into jiu-jitsu and, and how you got started working on uh grapplearts.com and all your instructional uh, DVDs and things that you put out. Um, how did you get involved with that? When Around what time did you get started in your uh, jiu-jitsu journey? Well, I guess inadvertently, it was wanting to be a ninja at about age eight. Nice. Or, and, uh, you know, working on my mom, working on my mom, working on my mom. And since there was no, you know, since all the ninjutsu schools in my hometown were invisible or not uh, not findable i was going to have to settle for something like you know jiu jitsu man that's or, the uh, way or... that's the way of the ninja though they're supposed to be invisible right yeah there's that awesome <laughs> video uh, out there of like um, i'm trying to remember the name of it it's something about the ninja parade people going to watch the ninja parade and it's you know the 20th annual yeah, anniversary yeah. And, yeah once again the ninjas are not spotted at the yep. ninja parade i remember seeing that one too that was hilarious yeah, so I, my mom wasn't so hot on the idea of her kid waving swords around and and climbing uh, trees with claws. For some for some reason, I still can't understand. Yeah, yeah. And so the best I could get was judo. That's it. Took uh, four years of lobbying to to start with judo, and so arguably, judo jiu-jitsu, I mean they're very related arts. Was my first martial art. Definitely. And then, uh, you know, when I got older and had more autonomy, I, I, I went off the, the path and, you know, went down the Kung Fu rabbit hole and the, uh, some other rabbit holes. But then kept on coming back to some form of grappling. And I think it was the Gracie in Action videos, the old VHS cassette tapes. Right, I remember those. That was sort of the, the wake-up call, like, hey, there's something happening here. And this is kind of, it's undeniable that, if you're interested in self-defense and ultimately, you know, I don't think of myself as a grappler first and foremost. I think of myself as a martial artist. Right. First, I mean, jujitsu is my favorite martial art, but you, there's a difference between sort of being a grappler and being a martial artist, I think. So as a martial artist, it was like, okay, there's something undeniable here that we need to take account of. And we started just at the end of uh, Kajukembo class with Philip Jelena's Academy in Montreal. He, uh, was gracious enough to allow us use of the mat space to roll around and at that time we you know we were pulling hair we were 
bending fingers. We were trying to put each other, you know, oh, thumbs yeah. in each other's eyes. Fish, so good fun. Good, good old fish hooking. Oh yeah, yeah, old school. Well, basically, the list of things that you weren't allowed to do in the first UFC we were yeah. doing. That was long before the first UFC. Yeah, I remember those days because that was kind of how our grappling was in the in the style of karate I did. There was a lot of the stuff that we're not allowed to do in jiu-jitsu, you know, pretending like you're pulling ears off and fish hooking and grabbing hair and all that good stuff. But any, any time spent on the ground, any time spent rolling around, whether you're going for the fish hook or you're going for the, you know, the Ezekiel choke, it's a totally legal choke, doesn't matter. You're still spending time on the ground. You're still basically trying to control somebody's body you're, you're you're dealing with weight and momentum and leverage and so it was still useful even though we didn't really have a clue what we were doing so i i, I look back on those times fondly and I, I wouldn't trade it i wouldn't trade it for the world yeah definitely you can always glean a lot of good information if you're if you're open to uh, receiving it right you can look how to uh, apply your lessons from the other traditional martial arts and carry those over into your jiu-jitsu training if you're if you're open and minded enough to be able to do that. Well, and nowadays somebody in the same position, good lord, the question is not okay. Back then, information was the choke point. It was the uh, the rate limiting step. There was nobody out there showing you how to you know I don't know. Get from the guard to the mount, mm-hmm. and from the mount to the armbar. You could kind of, sort of, maybe reconstruct it if you had a little bit of judo background and a little bit of traditional jiu-jitsu background, and you watched frame by frame, you know, the Gracie in action tapes, frame by frame. But now it's almost the other problem. There's so much information out exactly. there. Exactly. You know, you could train. In in theory, you could never enter a jiu-jitsu school, and get to a pretty decent level just training with your buddies. I mean, it's pretty likely you're going to go down some major rabbit holes, and ideally you are checking, you know, going to some jiu-jitsu school at least once in a while to calibrate yourself against reality. But the, you know, in theory, there's no shortage. Well, there is no shortage of information. What's, what's missing is the feedback or the context, you know, just because somebody's got this crazy-ass helicopter toehold, you know, upside-down, you know, inverted Delahiva Barambolo to toehold thing doesn't mean that it's a good technique. But they did put it on YouTube, so now it's yours. Yeah, take take it for what it's worth, right? Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. We ran into the same problem back when I was starting. It was just a lack of, of uh, information. I remember trying to take the, you know, somebody got a hold of some... Uh, bootleg VHS tapes of the UFC that they made and we would try to reverse engineer what Hoist was doing you know mm-hmm. try to try to learn how to do the arm bar and the chokes and all the different things that we saw him doing in there and and then I remember there was a there was a one like one book on jiu-jitsu and uh, on the cover I'll never forget it was kind of like this Italian guy in a in a tank top mm-hmm. with a big gold chain yeah, and yeah, yeah. and it was like you probably saw it cuz it was one yeah, of yeah. The, one of the only ones back then and that was like a, a grappling or jiu-jitsu book back in the day so it's a, it's really amazing how far things have come we have the we have the opposite problem we have information overload now well it's, I think it's a better problem to have oh most but... definitely but I remember there was this one guy 
so we're there are a bunch of us you know we we fast forward we moved from montreal or i moved from montreal to vancouver now there was another group of us and we were all training in different martial arts i was doing mostly judo at the time i was doing judo and i was doing wing chun and so with the judo i had a fair bit of grappling in there that's the area of judo that i specialized in for sure but the rules of judo grappling and the rules of jiu-jitsu grappling are different so we would once a week a big group of us would get together and we would train and there was one guy there who was quite a bit better off than the rest of us and he'd gone and bought I want to say the Pedro Carvalho oh, yeah. tape. I, I think that's what they were. Anyhow, they were super expensive. Yeah, and it was like a big like 12 or 15 yeah. VHS tape set, I think. Exactly. And I, like, I want to say three or $400. I might be making that up. Anyhow, he'd come and he'd show one technique from one of the tapes. And no matter how much you begged him, he wouldn't show you a second technique. <laughs> he wouldn't let the tapes out of his sight. Wouldn't let that it, information free. <laughs> no. It, uh, I guess it kept him at the top of the information pile. I mean, he... Yeah, he for sure. Actually, wasn't that tough to kick his ass, but we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> we, won't, so. we, won't let him, we won't let him know that unless he's listening. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, but... I. I think there was a something I read that was in a world of infinite content, context is king, right? So we're, we're switching from where there's a paucity of content to the requirement for context. And that's, I think, where I, you as an instructor, you must run into that all the time, right? Guys oh, come yeah. to class and try in some crazy-ass combination that doesn't fit in at all with the rest of their game or is just a stupid technique or isn't legal. Right. Or... Yeah, yeah, it does. A certain amount of time firefighting. Yep, it does happen for sure. Um, how would you recommend, with the vastness of you know the vast amount of information that's available out there, if you were to speak to a person that was wanting to go out and uh, you know supplement their training with some online instruction, is there a specific approach they should ch take, like narrowing their focus down to a certain area or uh, being aware of the the source of where the information's coming from? Do you do you think they should just dive in there head first or should they kind of have a little bit of a path laid out for them? Well, I mean, ultimately, ultimately, most of jujitsu is for fun. So if they read, I used to have, I used to have a much stricter approach to this like, no, you should, you know, focus your training. And if you want to get good fast, then you should focus your training. But if you are the type of person who really, 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 you know, one of these inveterate technique collectors and you want to know all 35 variations of the Barambolo, and that's what turns your crank, and you're, you're still a blue belt, and you can't actually Barambolo anybody who's very good, but, but, but you just enjoy it, man, who am I to argue? You know, like, if... You won't get good as fast. So I think we have to sort of maybe constrain the answer by saying, you know, what's your primary goal here? Is it to get good fast? You know, I, I think that and that would help refine the the answer. So assuming the person's goal is to get good fast and assuming if they're a rank beginner, then sure, I mean, they can go and watch techniques and stuff, but at that point, their main goal is to just get a couple of moves that work for them from every one of the major positions. Yeah, so a couple of moves and, and the ability to survive in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. 
hopefully their instructor is giving that to them. But there are a lot of people out there with instructors who are too busy with too many students, instructors who don't care, instructors who only enjoy showing super complicated, fancy stuff, and right. as a result, never teach the basics, or people without instructors, or people who can only go to a school once a month and the rest of the time they're training in their basement. So I, in those cases, the rank beginner should use the internet, but you know, they're, they probably shouldn't be using inverting escapes from side mount. They should be working on their, you know, bridge and hip escape, you know, that or their bridge hip escape and turn into a single leg. You know, those things are tried and true and there's a reason for them being tried and true. And once you've got those mastered, then you can start working on your inverting escapes. But ultimately, like you said, it, it comes back to keeping it fun. You know, training in jiu-jitsu should be fun. That's why you should be... Uh, coming back and and uh if you're serious you want to be a, a world-class competitor and, and all these other things narrow the focus a little more but make sure you have strong fundamentals and uh also let, allow yourself to have fun and go out there and and see all the different things that people are coming up with because there's definitely no shortage of that well it's a, it's a little bit you've you have to go to both ends of the uh the distribution if you're trying to specialize in, okay, the last move that I did or the last position that I did a deep dive into was the single leg X guard. Right. It's, it, it's something I really liked. It fit really well with the X guard. It fit really well with the butterfly guard. It fit really good with the instep or shin guard. So it was the next logical thing for me to focus on. I had, you know, I, I used it, but I hadn't done a deep dive. So I'll say that roughly half, I'm making this number up, but maybe about half of my time um, researching and watching competitors use that position or transition into that position or get out of that position was spent on the single leg X guard. And then the other half was just more pleasure, you know, like pleasure reading, reading for pleasure or, uh, and I think there's a value there too, because if there's some area of jujitsu that's developing that you have no awareness of, that can really come and bite you in the ass. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the whole worm guard thing myself yet. I don't use it much, but I better know what it is. At the very least, I better recognize it when somebody starts, you know, trying to feed my lapel three times around my leg and then around my wrist and then tie yeah. in a, in a yeah. bowline or whatever. Yeah, and from the perspective of somebody who's an instructor, even if we don't want to necessarily mm. add that uh, element to our game, we need to be able to show our students uh the basic concept and, and understand how to, you know, like you said, uh, learn how to avoid it if possible and recognize the warning signs and all those things. So if we're closed off to information, it can really uh, be a hindrance. I agree 100%. Uh, also, the best way to learn to defend against something is to learn to do it yourself. And that yep. comes from Eric Paulson. I mean, he's known as a leg lock guy, although he's got a, an array of skills that go way beyond leg locking. And initially, when he was taught leg lock, because he was going to be going to fight in Japan, where there was a preponderance of leg locks, so like, okay, in order to be able to defend against these leg locks, you need to learn them so you can recognize what's happening. And also, if you know how to apply, say an armbar, okay, so to do an armbar properly, your hips should be close to my shoulder. Your legs shouldn't be splayed completely apart. Um, and, you know, my thumb should either be pointing straight up or uh, to the down, you know, to the downhill side. So 
that right away, if those three things are true, that gives me three ways to escape from the armbar. One is to get my shoulder away from your hips and, and because then denying you the leverage. And, and then if, if I go through each of the other key points, you know, if I twist my hand the other way, then it's much harder for you to apply the armbar. And if I can spread your legs, uh, that was the second point, right? If I can make you do the splits, right? then I'm undoing the effectiveness of the armbar to some extent, and maybe I can find a way out. So if you know how to put a technique on really well, sometimes you can reverse engineer escaping from it just by denying the people the key points. For sure. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Understanding the move is a huge part about understanding how to counter. So what um, what's the last area of jiu-jitsu that you've been working on, James? Uh, for, for your own game. Let's see, for my game... Uh, or do you I, not want to just release this after your Super No, fight? no, yeah, no, I no. Know. No, I, I adapt to the situation, so I'm not uh, worried about going to a specific place. But uh, I actually have been having a lot of fun. I don't know if you've heard of it. There's a, a type of guard that the guy calls Karu Karu Guard, and he's uh, one of Solo Barrow's guys over in Brazil, a smaller guy. And it's kind of like a, a single leg X kind of position with the over overhooking the leg, wrapping the leg. Uh, but putting the foot in a different position. So I've been playing a lot with that probably for the, the past five or six years, just, you know, really going into the position from every possible situation and trying to control it and understand all the different uh, ways to get there and all the common reactions that people give. And so I've been, I've been having a lot of fun with that. I've been stubborn with my approach on that. I've been practicing it for a long time i haven't even i haven't even broke it out in competition yet maybe maybe next weekend it'll be a good time to do that i don't know it's funny i i saw bernardo faria teach a seminar at the end he rolled with everybody and he tapped every single person with an omoplata yeah in competition he's i think he's finished one guy with an omoplata so yeah, there's, yeah, there's sometimes there's these parallel tracks of what people are training on and I guess to have as, a, as an ace up their sleeve if everything else goes to hell. Yeah, exactly. Usually you see him go to deep half and hit his deep half sweep and uh, come up top and hit his over-under pass. And, you know, don't don't see him uh, with people in his guard a whole lot hitting mm -hmm. the, hitting that omoplata. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, it's, it's a great example of game plan design, which is another thing I suppose that your instructor, your instructor can help you pick out techniques that are more applicable to your game but hopefully a good instructor is also helping you put those techniques together into sort of an effective game plan where you know your guard sweep works together with your guard pass at, at the most simplistic level yeah and uh playing to whatever is is uh beneficial for your attributes too i think a good when, inst a good instructor will kind of uh direct you in in the way to play to your strengths <laughs> i find that so funny coming from you you just talked been talking about working a small guy guard for the last five years <laughs> you're bloody gigantic uh, and, and but I, you know the last I, time i saw you you were busy inverting another quote small guy maneuver hey uh, i uh i'm a, i identify as a little guy <laughs> <laughs> i'm a big guy tra or a little guy trapped in a big guy's body right <laughs> well i suppose if it, it keeps it better than the other way it uh hey 
my uh, my A game is always going to be on top. So, you know, what's it hurt to go and and uh, build my overall knowledge of jujitsu and and work work from my back? You know, because mm-hmm. I can always come back to the the top game. It's always going to be there. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a that's kind of how I've always approached it. You know, my my one of my first instructors was a very small guy. He's about five four, five five, and back then he was like 145 pounds. And he just told me, he said, James, you you have to start every round with the person in your guard, and the only way you're allowed to be on top is if you get a sweep. So I played off my back for many many years. Uh, and the way he explained it was similar to what I was just saying about, uh, you know, you're always going to be more naturally prone to being good from the top because of your size and everything. So what's it hurt to work from your back for a while and get a complete game there? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a problem there, I think, with some people, because if they're the smallest guy in the class, they're going to end up spending a ton of time in the guard and right. on the bottom. And they're going to develop a really killer guard game. And if you're the biggest guy in the class, as you point out, there's always a tendency that you're going to be the you know the smash and grind guy right. from the top. But if you actually go compete, the little guy is going to be mostly competing against other little guys. Yes, from and a the comp- big guys going. To- yeah, from a competition perspective, that definitely uh, plays a big factor. Yeah. So then you, it's, I, I I would definitely say it's rare to find big guys with. Uh, effective guards and it's rare it's slightly rare to find little guys who are better at the top game than they are at the bottom game yeah so kind of rare to see the little uh rooster weight smashing their way through huh mm-hmm. it's usually mm-hmm. more of a, a double guard pull kind of situation and see who gets the the sweep or gets to the back yeah well, i i don't know i i those those double guard pull situations they're technically interesting and I think you should train them, but I don't know at that point the Carlson Gracie lineage in me just bubbles <laughs> up and like somebody stand up damn it yeah. just crush the other guy. Yeah, I feel the same way when I see that. I call it uh, I call it stripper pull guard, mm. Tr- trying to rotate <laughs> rotate around the stripper pull. <laughs> yeah. But I, any any sport you have. In any set of rules that you have, people are going to do their very, very best to game it. Nobody wants to lose, right? So, oh yeah, definitely. If, yeah, it if, exists. It exists everywhere. So, I mean, it's yet another. Although the the double guard pull Barambolo thing seems to have stuck around for a fair amount of time. I mean, I thought fifty fifty was the end of the world. Yeah, uh, and. It you know it does not seem to have uh, negatively it doesn't seem to have had as long a uh, a, a residence time you know, yeah it hasn't stuck around for as long as as I thought it was going to yeah I've noticed a little trend recently uh, of a little a little less barambolo and more uh, guys getting into single leg X that kind of seems like uh, one of the things I see a lot more people going to in competition now. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe we're in a trend for for change, but you know, with jujitsu, it's kind of a a retro thing. You know, probably two or three years from now, it's going to be back to 
back to regular De La Hiva or, or some other position that that people forget about. and, and it... Or there's, a, there's this amazing position I've heard about, this amazing guard position, where if you're on your knees and I'm on my back, I take both my legs and I put them around your waist and I cross my ankles behind Holy your back. Holy cow. What yeah, would, it's what radical. Would, what would somebody call that? Like maybe a, a closed type of guard or something? Yeah, I think I think closed guard for uh, <laughs> for brevity. For, for brevity, yeah, for for guard. a lack of a better term. Yeah. Well, it's it, I mean, part of it is it's a paper scissors stone situation, right? If you spend all your time becoming super good at uh, barambolo, and somebody. And you know, countering Barambolo and knowing every aspect of that game, then somebody comes and puts you in a different position that you just haven't spent as much time in. Then now you've got to, and maybe you have a tough time. Now you got to go readjust. If, in order for you to change your game, uh, there's a there's an opportunity cost because you've got to go and spend time training something that's not your main game. Right. And really, the 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 best competitors have this uncanny ability to force people to play their game, which exactly. is amazing. Yeah, they can they can direct them into their strong position from, from almost everywhere. Yeah. I guess Amanda Nunes and Ronda Rousey is a good example of that. Oh, for she sure. kept Rousey in the striking range, and I think she, Rousey tried to clinch one time, if I remember correctly. She tried, was... uh, she tried twice, and, and Amanda just kind of took an angle and, and pushed her off both okay. times. But, yeah, I think I agree uh, from the technical technical aspect on that one. I also think uh, the mental game was a huge, huge factor in that one. I just don't think she was there. Uh, I think that, that other loss took a lot out of her, and... She had said some things in a in her interview on Ellen several months before that that kind of were the telltale signs of of things you shouldn't say if you're if you're <laughs> if you're aware of mental training in the mental game. She was kind of giving some signs that she her heart re- wasn't really into it anymore. Were those the, the the thoughts of suicide after losing? No, no. She was actually talking about. Uh, Anytime you, you see somebody talking about that they're they're planning to quit before they've even gone in and, and completed their their upcoming fight, that's usually a, a not a good sign. She, right. She was already <laughs> okay. She, I, she was I already. Didn't, I did not see this interview. I just saw the yeah, headlines it, from it. Yeah. So she was already saying like, uh, yeah, this will probably be my last, or you know, I might do one or one or two more fights, kind of thing, and. And uh, just her uh, mannerisms and posture. She kept looking down a lot when she was giving the answers. She just she looked like she had a total uh, lack of confidence going into it. Mm-hmm. So That's it was actually uh... it was actually uh, you know I've never been a, a fan of hers, but it was actually uh, really sad to see. You don't want to see. I didn't want to see somebody go out that way. You know. Well, there are very very few MMA fighters who go out on a high note. I mean, yeah, it, it's I think the the money is a big lure and the, you know, I've known fighters who, you know, how else are they going to make 20 grand in a couple of months? Yeah, right? or, or uh, 24 grand a second like Ronda made. I think they, yeah. said, as they said she made three million on that fight. So somebody broke it down and it was like 
24 or 25,000 a second that she yeah. was in the ring. I mean, that's that's astronomical, so well, what people what I try and tell fighters who are trying to decide whether they should quit and they never listen. No. Well, is, that's 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 one of the things that goes hand in hand with training fighters. <laughs> <laughs> I I guess you want somebody who's super stubborn and does not give up. Exactly. And has strong mental toughness, but unfortunately that can translate to a lack of coachability as well. <laughs> um is you know, they've got to think about legacy. So Ronda Rousey made was it 3 million dollars for that fight, but how many millions of dollars of uh, movie roles did she leave on the table? Yeah, I screwing that up. Uh, similarly, say you got some, you know, B fighter who's not fighting the UFC, he's fighting in other promotions, but he ends his life, his career on you know five losses or something. Well, if his big life plan is to open a school, potential students are going to know that this guy, you know, went out on a downhill trajectory. Yeah, and 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 I think that's. You know that's a that's a tough legacy to to exit the sport with. Yeah, it's tough uh, for people that have that that kind of spirit that that want to keep getting in there. It, it can be hard for them to, you know, make the decision to quit at the right time. They just, especially uh, the people that start losing and then they keep trying to go back and and rekindle that that win streak that they used to have. And it just a lot of times you don't see it work out the way that that they would like it to. Well, one thing I've seen a lot of is they still have the desire to win, but they start losing the desire to prepare to win. Right. I mean, that's not always true. Some people are just in there grinding in the gym day after day after day. But but at a certain point, you know, if, uh, one guy I knew uh, summed it up like, man, when I started training, when I started training for MMA, I just wanted to train every day. I want to train three times a day. And now... I just don't ever want to train, and like when I've got a fight coming up, I'm like, oh shit, six weeks of. I guess I better get started. And well, like, that's just not a good sign. Like, yeah. Oh, I guess I better get started. Well, and I think you would agree, uh, being someone that's been around it a long time. I mean, MMA training is is uh, there's not a lot of longevity in MMA mm -hmm. training uh, as a full time thing. I mean, your body can only take that kind of abuse for so many years. I mean, they have so many injuries and are so banged up. You know, a lot of people don't realize uh, pretty much none of those people are 100% going into those fights. They're all going in there with exactly. with nagging injuries and things that, that happen during camp and everything else. So you and can people only... are so sure, the, the, the guys on the couch are so sure that they know why the guy lost. Oh, look at that idiot. He was keeping his hands down. You never yeah. keep your hands down in a fight. Well, who knows? Maybe his rotator cuff was hanging together with, you know, two little muscle fibers, but he agreed to fight and didn't want to pull out of it. I mean, I've known boxers who fought with broken hands. They, well, oh, yeah. they're not, they're supposed to catch all that stuff in the pre-fight workups, but if they can hide it, they do. Um, and they usually do hide it. <laughs> yeah. Or they, they go in there completely sick. Yep, I've seen uh, that. Fighting with staff and everything else. Yeah, it's scary stuff, but yeah. uh, you know that that's a it's a hard career, and it can be hard to to know when to hang it up for sure, especially would, especially when you love it. I always thought it'd be interesting that when they have those um, weigh-in statistics right before the fighters fight, and they show the height, they show the age, they show their 
their record, they show their, their reach. If they could have a separate thing of, and you, you'd never get this information of all the medical problems yeah. that they're currently dealing with, uh, that would, you know, I'm sure the, uh, the odds makers in Vegas would like to get their hands on that information as well. Yeah, for sure, and not to mention the the damage they do to themselves uh, with the extreme weight cutting that uh, a lot of them participate in. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you see some of those people go in there looking like zombies, mm-hmm. and uh, your body can only bounce back from that so many times, and then you see these guys like, uh, oh, what's his name, Johnny Hendricks, who's missed weight now two or three times in a row to where their body just won't uh won't let go of that weight anymore they can't can't handle the cuts especially with the ufc uh, not allowing them to do the ivs after weighing in and all of that it's it's kind of throwing a monkey wrench in there well i have it on good authority that back in the day they weren't only just putting iv like you'd you'd weigh in close to death you'd slam an iv in your arm but that iv would have a whole bunch of good drugs in it too yeah and yeah that yeah, was, stuff that would be picked up now by the USADA testing, hopefully. Yeah, and that uh, was the that was the other reason why they uh, they did that was because they were saying, hey, they're they're not just hydrating; they're they're putting a lot of other stuff in there as well. So they're diluting. <laughs> yes, exactly, cleaning out the system. So uh, something I wanted to touch on. I mentioned during the intro that uh, I consider you a, a pioneer in in uh, instructional DVD market and online instruction. I mean, I remember that uh, I want to say your DVDs and maybe some of Keith Owens DVDs were some of the the first DVDs that I started regularly uh, purchasing and, and checking out. You know, what was your uh, thinking or reasoning for wanting to to delve into that market? Well, I got to, once again, thank Eric Paulson because I got my hands on one of those ancient uh, VHS recorders. So they basically, these were a video camera where you'd literally slap a VHS tape onto the side of it. Yep, I remember those. My parents would rent those from back when we used to have video stores where you could go rent videos. The, the local one had where you could rent the giant VHS cameras like that. Mm. So... I had one of those, and I, I'd been thinking, I think it was a systematic approach to attacking the turtle, right? It, it, you know, first you try this, then you try that, then you try this other thing, then you try this other thing. And so we filmed it in a buddy of mine's rec room in his apartment complex. We filmed it, and I was pretty happy with it, and I... Uh, made some VHS tape copies and I sent them off to a friend of mine who was living, you know, a couple hundred miles away. And I was like, Oh, what the hell? I'll send it one to Eric Paulson who I knew. And I sent it to a couple other people, you know, my instructor, uh, back home. Like, Hey, what do you think of this? This, you know, pretty cool technology, this VHS tape thing. <laughs> uh, um, and Eric got back to me and said, Hey, you should try selling that. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding. Uh, you know, I'm just a purple belt who'd, who'd ever buy something from a purple belt. And he gave me examples of a couple other purple belts and brown belts who were selling stuff. Right. He goes, well, and you're a, you're a really good teacher. And so, you know, and you're one of my instructors, so go ahead and sell it. And so I, I didn't sell that, but it, it, it kind of opened the doors to, well, maybe there is a way to, 
disseminate information. And that was back in the day when the standard thing to do, if you won a UFC, I remember Don Fry won a UFC. Oh, yeah. They were in the, the tapes were all in the back of the Black Belt, exactly. mag, Black Belt magazine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they would include things like, you know, Don Fry's killer punching combinations, which is valid because the guy was a wicked puncher. Don Fry's takedowns and throws, which is valid because Don Fry was a good wrestler. Don Fry's submissions from the guard, which was a complete <laughs> crock of crap because yeah. Don Fry didn't know the guard from, you know, I don't know, the turtle position. Right. And it was obvious when he ended up on his back that he had no clue of what he was doing. Yeah, absolutely. And so one thing I promised myself is I wouldn't make well, tapes or DVDs or apps or uh, instructional, instructionals, we'll call them instructionals, about a topic that I didn't feel fairly confident in myself. Like right. that would be my distinguishing thing. I wouldn't make as many of them. It wouldn't be as long. I wouldn't be able to do the 12 to 15 set VHS tape set like what you talked about, but uh, at least not at that time. But I would constrain myself to talking about what I enjoyed or what I was, you know, what I'd been researching essentially and what I'd been using in my own game. And I put it out there and the, the response was pretty good. People, people liked it. And despite the fact that I think at the time I was very, uh, you know, I, I wasn't as comfortable on camera right. then as I am now, I think spending hundreds if not thousands of hours in front of a camera since then have helped yeah a little bit yeah it's just that uh putting in those hours and getting that experience just like uh just like jujitsu training yeah yeah i probably got i don't know ten thousand hours but something close to it if you count all the time well i mean i edited my videos back in the day like the omoplata video oh yeah i've got that one sitting about it's it's (laughs) it's over here on my dvd rack about two feet away from me right now Oh, that's funny. That thing took probably, well, it took two days to film, and it took probably 500 hours of me sitting in front of the computer trying to edit it and trying to figure out video editing software. What uh, what software were you using back then? That was Adobe Premiere oh, on, yeah. uh, on a custom-made PC that a friend of mine had cobbled together yep. as the perfect machine for video editing. So I think <laughs> he'd, he didn't know what the hell he was doing. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I think we ended up in there with two video cards that were conflicting. I mean, this is still technobabble that I don't get. You're good at that stuff. I get it. I get it. You're speaking my language. Okay. (laughs) But but I I think two video cards that are conflicting is a bad thing when you're video editing. That is, yeah. (laughs) So, and then uh, I remember putting in three or 400 hours editing the next one. I think it might have, or one of the future ones, might have been the butterfly guard one. Yeah, I editing think, it. Yeah, and then going, huh? The video quality here sucks. I've got to refilm it and throw out all the editing. And so, so yeah, if you count all the editing, staring at video and listening to myself yabble on endlessly, uh, then I got my ten thousand hours a couple times over. I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the things I've always enjoyed about your instructionals is how you um, you kind of chain things together and, and explain things in a sequence that's easy to understand. Uh, I always found, and, and I still find today, that a lot of instructionals that come out uh, just kind of jump all, all over the place, and it can kind of be hard to to find the, the underlying thread that they're getting at. So 
I, I really like uh, your approach on that. Was that just something that you did naturally or was it your intention going into it to structure the, the instruction in that way? Oh man, I'm, I'm half German. So half of me is uh, just the, the lack of organization in, in a teaching system drives me crazy. Right. It's just the, oh, but okay, this may sound like a non sequitur. Winston Churchill once wrote a book. It was about the history of the English speaking, English speaking peoples, right? So the history of the British Isles and then a little bit of the history of America. And his critics said it should have been called a history of the things that I, Winston Churchill, am interested in <laughs> because it just jumped around and covered episodes in, in history that he thought was interesting. And I think a lot of people make instructionals like that. Their instructional should be called a bunch of cool things that I like to do from the guard yeah. or a bunch of unconnected ways I like to submit people from the top. And there's some value there, but there's way more value in a system. I, it, it, it's much more important to know how to hook things together and tie them together and to know, okay, here's what my decision-making process is. When I'm faced with a guy who's on his back and both of his hands are up like this, you know, protecting his face, how do I attack him? What's the first thing I do? What's the second thing I do? How do I, or if it's a, instructional on the Kimura, which I haven't done, but if I did one on the Kimura, it would be all the ways to get into the Kimura, despite all the different kinds of resistance, mm. how to hold the Kimura, and then how to finish the Kimura against all different kinds of resistance. So I, it, it's many ways into the same position, many ways out of the same position, and to some extent, the ways in and the ways out are determined by what your opponent gives you, because you can't shut down everything all at once. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I find that a lot of times with instructionals or, or when people are uh, learning a technique, they're so focused on the end result that they they miss the little nuances that you need to be familiar with as far as, like you said, getting in the, the entrance into the position is important. The control of the position is important. And then if you've done all those things correctly, hopefully you'll be able to apply the, the finish. Well, we've talked about single leg X guard a couple of times. The single leg, the breakthrough for me for the single leg X guard uh, was basically realizing that the core thing is how to off balance the guy when you're in the single leg X guard. Right. If you can't off balance the guy when he's standing there, then he's going to be able to peel your feet out of position. He's going to be able to stuff your knee. He's going to be able to come over in a half guard or mount or backstep or you know only bad things will happen to you if you can't keep him on the run exactly so and the, it's very similar to the x guard right if you just if if i get the x guard on you and just do not move and i'm a statue there you'll figure out a way how to you know knock my feet out of place and pass so the whole in a way that maybe the close guard you can you can get away with some positions a little bit more but with open guard positions a lot of the, the process of maintaining it, ironically, is is the process of moving around and keeping your opponent moving around and off balance. So once, you know, I didn't know if I was going to, uh, how deep I was going to go with a single leg X until I it all clicked for me. That was my clicking point. I guess different submissions and different techniques have points at which they click. I mean, what what's been something for you that's just all of a sudden clicked and started working? And do you remember what it was that made it all like an entire game or an entire position um, finally make sense? 
for me, uh, setting up the, the paper cutter or bread cutter choke, uh, the entrance into it and the, the control of the position it was a big one for me. Not allowing people to retract their bottom shoulder and, and get to their side to turn in. Um, that was a big breakthrough on that one in, in discovering all the different ways that I could accomplish that same thing once I, once I realized that was the key to the, to the position. And if you were showing that to me, and there was somebody who had no experience with jiu-jitsu sitting and watching, they would just be <laughs> shaking their head. Yes, I can move my hand here in that yeah, block. Yeah, exactly. Or I can shift my weight ever so slightly this way in a way that only a jiu-jitsu guy would notice. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's funny, the, the attention to detail. I remember watching the UFC early, uh, in the early days, when there was no understanding of groundwork at all, except for the jiu-jitsu guys who were watching. Yeah. And there'd be a bunch of drunk, you know, tr you know, the trailer park crowd would come down, the jiu-jitsu guys would come down, and the only place in town showing it was a strip club, so we'd all be in the strip club. <laughs> and there'd be somebody pounding on somebody on the bottom, and finally the guy on the bottom would manage to get the guard back, and his knee would pop out at the other side of the person's body. All the jiu-jitsu guys would go nuts. Yep. And all the trailer park guys would, like, Stand, stand, yeah, stand him yeah. up. Why do, Why yeah. doesn't he get up? Yeah. <laughs> you should just get up. Yep. Yeah. Knock, okay. Knock him out. <laughs> oh, oh, damn. Finally, I've got the, the, the part of the plan that I've been missing. Yeah. If, if only I'd realized that knocking him out was an option. Yeah, it's so easy. Why don't you just yeah. do that? <laughs> yeah. You put out a lot of content. Uh, I've seen you, like, it seems like you're always... Uh, putting something out or, or doing something new. What do you, uh, how do you stay so productive and how do you stay motivated? <laughs> I know those are like, those are like trick questions, but I, I, I admire how much uh, work you put in and in, in the, the frequency in which you put out your uh, instructionals online. You know, a lot of people probably don't realize you do the DVDs, you do the YouTube stuff, you do your own, you have your own podcast as well. So how do you uh, prioritize and make time for all of that? Well, I, I, people talk about, you know, sacrifice. Oh, you got to sacrifice to be a champion. Well, what does sacrifice mean? Sacrifice means not doing something. Right. So I, I think a lot of it is, um, you know, the things I don't do, right? I mean, I don't... Uh, I don't go drinking. I don't have a TV. I haven't had a TV. I don't have Netflix. I don't watch Netflix. Um, I'll may, and my, my one escape is going to see the occasional movie in the theater. I really, it's such a busy life that I really like, you know, once a month, once right. every couple of months, going to the theater, turn off my phone and sitting in blackness and just having an immersive experience. But other than that, um, uh, you know, I'm either doing jujitsu or working or working on jujitsu stuff, right? It, it, uh, um, so it would be safe to say that you've made it a priority. Yeah. And at the, I'm sure there are things that I'm sacrificing. Uh, I mean, what gets weird is when you're, you know, working on some big jujitsu instructional project and you find it cutting into your jujitsu right. time. Yeah. And you're like, man, you know, it, well, but, I mean, the bottom line is nobody gets to train as much as they want, right? Even the guy who's out there training three times a day, six days a week, you know, and he's 22 years old, 
he doesn't think that he's training enough. You know, he might be limited by the fact that he needs to, I don't know, uh, work a job or, you know, sell drugs or whatever, however he supports <laughs> his, his jiu-jitsu habit. Right, right. <laughs> or just his body starts breaking down. But, you know, nobody thinks that they're training enough. And so, and also in, this is, this, this sport, this game, it's a marathon, right? Like if, Honestly, if you get, you know, I have kids. There have been times that I've been super crazy busy with my kids. Right? I mean, on top of all that other stuff, I was homeschooling them for years. Yeah. And, you know, that is not, you know, when you're working a couple of jobs and homeschooling your kids, something's got to go. Yeah. So if, if, you know, if during that time, you're just not going to be putting in the same number of hours on the mat as you did when you were younger. And that's just a fact of life. And sport will be there for you when you get back. You know, I speak from experience here. And uh, I'm finally able to pick up my training a little bit, you know, having moved through that phase. And it's a wonderful feeling. And guess what? The sport's still here. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jiu-Jitsu will always be there for us when we're ready to, when we're ready to come back. Yeah. But... Um, and, and if you can do something to keep it alive in the meantime, I mean, it, it, you don't, I think succumbing to binary thinking, either I'm training five days a week or screw it. I'm not training at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think know. That, I know a couple, I know yeah. a couple people like that. It's kind of that all or nothing mentality. I think part of the problem is say you're training five days a week and you're competitive with a bunch of guys and now you go to two times, you go to a maintenance schedule, Right. Two times a week. That's all you can do for whatever reason, right? Your probation officer only lets you go to jiu-jitsu twice a week. <laughs> and the people that you used to hang with keep getting better. And you, you're getting better but not as fast. And they start kicking your ass. And I think a lot of people find that really difficult to deal with. Yep. As opposed to saying, no, no, no. What this proves is that jiu-jitsu works. Right. If you train more, you will get better faster, and you'll be able to kick the ass of people who don't train as often. Exactly. So what are you expecting? You know, like some is better than none always. Some is better than none. So if you can only train once a week, train only once a week. It'll keep, you know, your neurology <laughs> a little bit jiu-jitsu oriented. Then try and do as much as you can on the side by watching video or thinking about it or not becoming a, a big fat slob, not mm -hmm. overeating not trying to replace your jiu-jitsu with uh you know alcohol right and it'll be there for you when you get back yeah I, I think the the ego can get in the way when these guys have been gone for a long time and they get back and and uh you know kind of can't come to terms with being uh getting squished or getting tapped out by people who would, wouldn't normally do that to them so it's kind of, I think it leads to that all or nothing mentality because they're afraid if they, if they, they can come to grips with it more if they've completely laid off training and come back and that happens versus maybe doing the once or twice a week and having it happen. The, I mean, the other way that ego can hugely affect your training, I mean, on the one hand, you need ego, but on the other hand, if it, if you're slow to tap on something that can seriously hurt you, you know, you can put your training back by months, if not years, and po quite possibly forcing an early retirement from jiu-jitsu. I mean, my, you know, I can think of lots of guys running around with neck injuries who can say exactly where it was and against who it was. Yep. 
where they got that neck injury from. I mean, my neck has been, you know, I've been struggling with it. I'm, I'm, it's improving because of a couple things that I'm doing. But I can remember the cervical from, you know, the, the, the stocks from the clothes guard mm-hmm. that I thought I could wriggle out of. I, I know the training room that it was in. Yep. I know the guy that it was against. He wasn't um, reckless. It was my fault. He kept on applying it, applying it, applying it. And I thought, I can get out, I can get out, I can get out, pop, pop, pop. And then I yelled. Yep. I so know. That's my own damn fault, and that's ego. Yeah, I know a guy the same thing happened to, and he's it actually uh, fractured his vertebrae. Oh, really? Yep. Is he okay now? Uh, it was years and years ago. He, he's got to be careful. He's a black belt and runs a school, but he's got to be careful with who he, you know, who he rolls with. That was from a, a can opener. A uh, guy was inside his guard and, and did the can opener to open the guard, and mm-hmm. that was back before... Uh, you know, people knew to just open the guard and, and try to sit up when that happens. And he yeah, just, yeah. he kept his guard on and, and refused to tap. And, you know, however many neck surgeries later, it's kind of a, a tough lesson to learn. But definitely, uh, that pride definitely gets in the way sometimes. Yeah. I mean, the other, you know, dangerous locks i mean if you if you don't choke if you don't tap out to a rear naked choke you're going to go to sleep mm-hmm. worst case scenario you know do the funky chicken for everybody <laughs> um, but you're probably not going to be damaged for life but if you don't tap to something like a wrist lock you know you can have require multiple surgeries to fix that wrist absolutely but, you know so anything to do with the neck any kind of crank anything man just tap anything to do with your wrist man just tap any kind of twisting leg lock so heel hook or even a toe hold man just tap you know and you know if you're like a leg lock expert if you're eddie cummings and some dude gets you in a leg lock and it's the the abu dhabi finals i understand if you don't yeah but but it would suck if in the training you know the the, the in the dojo in the training hall you don't tap to that leg lock because you're trying to prove how tough you are, your knee goes pop, you tear your, you know, your ACL, and then you don't ever make it to the Abu Dhabi <laughs> competition, right? I mean, yeah, then you're out six months and six or eight months have surgery and all of that good stuff. It'll never be the same. Yep. So yeah, it's definitely yeah. a important lesson for people to hopefully learn early in their jujitsu journey. Um, so you see a lot of people that 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 happens to, and it's uh, nine times out of ten, it's something that's easily avoidable through just uh, making sure to tap. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. do you have any uh, big projects you're working on right now? Anything new that's going to be coming out, or that just recently came out that you'd like to let everybody know about? Well, I suppose the last thing to come out was the. Uh, BJJ Formula apps and DVD set, so it's available as an app, as a series of four apps, or the DVDs that I did with Rob Bernacki, and those were interesting because they were very, very biomechanically based, right? That was the basis of the whole thing, was taking a look at the underlying principles of jiu-jitsu, things like base, posture, structure, um, and and trying to dissect that and see how it applies from the bottom, from the top. And he's uh, quite a colorful guy. I really like him. Most of the people who've 
who've taken a look at that product have also really liked it. But you have to be a little bit on the nerdy side, right? If you just want to learn a bunch of techniques, I wouldn't recommend it. Did you, you uh, want... did you title it Jiu-Jitsu for Engineers? <laughs> we thought about it. We thought about it. You should have done it, man. Maybe, the, was... maybe the next one. Yeah. The then we would have gotten every engineer on the planet. Yeah, exactly. But actually, a moment arm is defined as this. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, and I've got a smaller little project about the single leg X-Guard coming out soon. I, I've also got a couple other projects coming up that will be filming fairly soon, but they're still top secret. So oh. basically, if you're interested in any of that, um, what I tell people is, you know, of course I make announcements on social media when this stuff comes out, but it's so easy to miss stuff on social media. I mean, I've got, you know, the if you you and I are friends, and I figure maybe I catch every tenth, maybe every twentieth post that you do, and it's not not anything personal. It's just I got tons of incoming messages. All yeah, the- yeah. You didn't even know I had a podcast, and now you're yeah. on. Now you're on it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So the best thing to do for my stuff is to go to my site and sign up for my email newsletter. That keeps you current as to all the new stuff that's coming out. And if you don't like what you get, if you think I'm spamming you, if you if you signed up and you regret it, there's an unsubscribe button at the bottom and you can be gone and I, I won't send you any more stuff. So if you go to grapplearts.com slash newsletter, grapplearts.com slash book, you can download my beginner's guide to jiu-jitsu that I've gotten some really good feedback on. It takes that whole idea of get good at a couple of techniques from every one of the major positions and goes into the major positions yeah you have your uh, roadmap for jiu-jitsu on there i'm looking at that right now that's great arts.com slash book and there's also an app version of that but yeah go and sign up uh, give me your email see if you like the stuff that you get and if you don't like it don't worry you can easily unsubscribe and that way you'll stay current with all the the many balls i've got in the air and this yeah. crazy jug thing that's known as running a jiu-jitsu business for sure and and on the on the app store if they're looking for apps can they get those through uh itunes and do you have your apps on android as well or is it just on uh on apple for now no no they're they're android as well as uh perfect as well as ios Uh, easiest way to find them all is to go to grapplearts.com slash apps right there there's one free one the roadmap and there are a couple low-priced ones that are kind of stuff that everybody should know, everybody should have. And then there are a whole bunch more, you know, premium priced ones that go into very specific aspects of the game. So you might choose just a few of those, or you might choose just one or two of the series in there. For example, the Rob Bernacki BJJ formula apps, that's that's a set of four apps, right? The first one is just all about the underlying concepts. The next one's about the bottom game and how to use essentially biomechanics to make your bottom game much more effective in the process there we go into you know guard retention and guard attacks and guard sweeps very cool the third one is the is the top position and the fourth one is the back position so the the back position is the one that's sort of most like a normal you know, in, in air quotes instructional because it's got you know here's six ways to take the back here's five things to do when the guy tries to escape this way here's four things to do when the guy tries to escape that way it's a I think it's like a three-hour app. I think it's I think it's the record now for uh, longest app that I've ever produced. Anyway, that sounds awesome. And I have uh, 
I have a lot of your apps, so I can personally attest to the quality of them. So I definitely encourage people to go check them out. And I need to make sure I go and, and uh, pick up the most recent ones because there's always uh, a lot of good stuff I can I can take away, a lot of good details. And uh, I was going to ask you, you know, I've been bugging you for years to come and do a seminar at my school. And I know you don't do many seminars because you're so busy, but... Would you uh, make an exception for your old buddy three hundred one of the one of these years? <laughs> Definitely. The I mean, the, one of the main things, honestly, holding me back from doing them for the last ten years, and my kids were young, right? My kids were young and they needed me. Yeah, and family, dad had a family. Family's family. important. Yeah. So now they're a little bit older. It's slowly, slowly giving me a bit of flexibility to do things like that. I really enjoy um, the traveling. It's it's not always easy to get the scheduling right, but let's let's find a way to make it happen. Yeah, I'd love to do that, and I'd love to come back up there and visit you again. It's been way too many years. Yeah, it's crazy. You blink and 10 years go by. I know. I can tell by all the gray in the side of my beard on both sides here. <laughs> <laughs> the, the distinguishment being added. Yeah, I call it my wisdom. Those are, I, er, I earned every one of those. <laughs> Well, any uh, final shout-outs you want to give before we uh, before we say goodbye on here? Man, I'll, you know what? I'll make it to my training partners. Like, over the years, yes, instructors are incredibly important. But the people that are most responsible for you getting better on a day-to-day basis are your training partners. So, um you know, if I go down the list of names, I'm going to miss them for sure. Uh, you know, Dennis Kang, Vlado Skrepnik, Adam Ryan, Mo Perry, Chad Scans, uh, Jean-Francois de Rochemont, uh, Richie Yip, especially Richie, uh, my main training partner now, Scotty McKeegan. Man, I'm, I'm going to be missing people left, right, and center, and I apologize. Uh, I should have had a list. Um, but yeah, if you've ever trained with me, I thank you because it's, you know, hopefully it was good for you, but it was certainly good for me. That's awesome, man. What a great way to end the podcast, our 10th podcast now. We're going to be putting out a lot more episodes this year, hopefully, and uh, I just really want to thank you, and I appreciate you taking the time tonight to, to come on the show, and hey, if you'll have me, I would love to be on your podcast someday. Let's do it. All right, my friend. Awesome. Well, listen, let's uh, let's talk later about that seminar. We'll make it happen. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. All right, my friend. You have a good night. 